Peter chapter 5, verses 4 uh, through 14 say, Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. By Sylvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. May we be blessed by the reading of God's Word. You may be seated this morning. We are coming to the close of our um, series here in 1 Peter. We've been in it for several months. I pray, as it has been for me, it's been an encouragement to you. How has God's grace covered our disgrace? That's kind of what we've looked at, the theme of this book. And how do we do that in the midst of suffering? And so my prayer for you, my prayer for myself, is that God would continue to use this to shape us in our suffering. We're not just going to suffer through this uh, series. We will suffer for the sake of Jesus Christ all of our lives if we pursue God. That's what Peter's been telling us over and over and over again. Before I get into the text, I just want to let you know where we're headed over the next uh, seven weeks after we get out of 1 Peter. We'll head to the Old Testament. We'll do uh, about six or seven weeks through the book of Daniel. I'll stop at chapter 7. Chapter 7, uh, it, it gets... Um, uh, let's, let's see, what's the word? Difficult to teach, I'll put it that way. It's about end times. and uh, So we'll just go through the narrative of Daniel. And what does it look like for us? In Daniel chapter 2, he talks about, God talks about giving wisdom to the wise and giving wise words to wise people. And we're going to look at that theme. What does it look like for us as God's people to live in a world that, just like Daniel lived in, that's opposed to, to the beliefs of what he believed in. And we need the wisdom of God to live in this fallen world. Amen? Uh, we do not have wisdom. We will fall right into uh, the patterns of this world. And so we'll look at that through the life of Daniel. Uh, Daniel is an amazing godly man. Uh, and the way he lived his life and the, the things that he stood for and the places he stood firm in, I believe that God can really use this series in our uh, walk here at, at Palace Chapel in a mighty way. And so that's where we'll head uh, we'll take uh, a week break or so for Easter and then come back into uh, the, the book of Daniel after that. And so this morning we'll be back in the final words of 1 Peter chapter 5. As John read uh, to us, we're going to look at the same way that Peter opened the text, uh, opened the book, he's going to close the book. He's going to call us as believers to live a certain way. That's what he's been doing throughout the book. And now in these last few 
words, he's going to summarize all that he's told us. Right? He's going to say, hey, persecution's coming, and stand firm in the persecution, and in the standing firm, there is going to be results, not of yourself, but what God has done for us. And we'll look at that this morning. And so Peter, I believe in all the parts of the word, I, I believe these last few words, Peter is sitting there as an older man in the faith, and he's penning this letter to the elect that we talked about in chapter 1. And, and I believe as he gets to the end of the letter, he begins to reflect on his own life. Remember Peter, the, the man with a foot-shaped mouth. He's writing, this is who's writing the letter. And Peter's coming to the end of himself and coming to the end of this letter as, and being reminded of what he did. Like, who was it that in the garden he comes and he falls asleep and Jesus approaches Peter? He, it was Peter that fell asleep in the garden when, when Jesus said to Peter, Hey, Peter, just watch for me. I'm going to go over here and I'm going to pray. I need you to watch for me. What does Peter do? He falls asleep. He comes back and he falls asleep again and Jesus basically says, what are you doing? Right? And so listen to those words as these words are being read. Right? Be watchful. Right? That's what he's reminded. Being in the garden. Be watchful. Remember you have an enemy that's going to attack you. Remember Peter was the disciple that betrayed Jesus. Or or that denied Jesus. Right? Because the night before, he wasn't being watchful. He wasn't praying against the adversary the night before. He falls into temptation. But remember, who penned this letter was the same man that Jesus, right before his ascension, came to Jesus and restored him. Right? And so when he uses that word at the end, of the text that the, the God of all glory will what himself restore, confirm, and strengthen and establish you. Think of those words in line of how Peter was what? He was restored. Jesus restored him. Think about how he was confirmed. He was confirmed in front of the other disciple. He was confirmed in Acts chapter 2. Think of how he was strengthened. For Peter, just several days, months after the, the denying Christ, he was able to stand up and give the first declaration of who Christ Jesus was in Acts chapter 2. Outside of the Sermon on the Mount, in my opinion, maybe the most powerful sermon to ever be preached. Because thousands and thousands and thousands of people came to know Christ. And that's how the church got started. And remember, who had said was in the words that were going to establish the church. It was going to be through Peter and Peter's declaration of who Christ Jesus was. So remember that as we read this text. we got to remember who the writer is. If we forget who the writer is, the power of the letter will be lost. So this is Peter who's pinning these final words <coughs> when he says this. We'll look at five things this morning. He's going to tell us, how do we live in this world of persecution? How are we going to live in this world of persecution? And he tells us right off the bat, in verse 5 and 6, he says, likewise, that means therefore, like the, the, the things before, he, remember last week we talked about 
elders, and we talked about the responsibility of the elders. Jared, you are the man. Thank you. That's what you pay him for right there. I said we vote yes on that Wednesday just for the water. Just kidding. No, seriously. He says this, likewise, you who are younger, remember we talked about the role of an elder, and he's saying now back to the young men in the church, hey, young men in the church, you've got to live with humility to the elders of the church. I think he's talking to the young men primarily because it's the young men who rebel the most, at least outwardly. I've got a daughter, and she rebels, well, sometimes outwardly, but most of the time inwardly. And I think he's referring to the young men for that reason. And he says this to them. Here's how you're going to live in this world of suffering and persecution. You're going to first, you've got to live with a, a submission to the church elders. You've got to live that way. And then he says this to them. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. The thir- first thing that we must do as we come to the close of this book and we come to the close of all that Peter's been telling us, how are we going to live in this world of persecution? We live with humility. We clothe ourselves with humility. The word humility means this in the Greek. It means to a, a lowliness of the mind. It's the attitude of one willing to serve even in the lowest of stakes. The lowest task you'll serve. And so Peter is saying to us, here's how you're going to live. You are going to live in humility. You know, we live in a world that says don't live with humility. Correct? We live in a world that says uh, it's the slogan of Burger King, my way right away. Get whatever you can, as fast as you can, as much as you can. You know, it's the ladder, if you will. We all live on a ladder. It's either there's people above us that we're trying to achieve Or there's people below us we're continuing to step over to get to those that are higher than us to achieve. And and as you and I, and more so you with the maturity, have learned that there's never the end of the ladder. There's never going to be enough. There's never enough power. There's never enough success. There's never enough money. There's never enough you fill in the blank. And so what Peter is telling us to live in this world, the world is saying, hey, you're going to want to live this way to achieve this God is saying, hey, you got to live this way. Live with humility. Will we live with humility? And where does he tell us to live with humility first? The church. See, he's not addressing us, hey, when you live in this world, live with humility outside of the four walls of this place first. No, he says, hey, you, the church, live with humility in here first. Humble yourselves. With one another. And basically, what he says is outserve one another. Is that true for us, Powell's Chapel? Would you say to yourself, and what I say to myself, I do all that I can to outserve the person sitting next to me in the church? Because here's the reality and the truth of it if you do not do it here, you will not do it out there. Now, I'm not saying it's easy to serve in here, but it's way easier to serve in here than outside of here. 
You see, because outside of here, we know we're going to a world that, that they would say, no, we, we don't love you. At least in here, we're making the declaration, yeah, we love one another. We are Christ's followers. We love each other. But does our service to one another through our humility show that we really do love one another? Have we clothed ourselves with humility? The word he uses there is to clothe ourselves. It's to tie something on oneself. Remember who said that word? Peter. Remember that story that when Peter was with Jesus at the very end of his ministry, what did Jesus do? He took off his outer garment and what he clothed himself with it to wash the disciples' feet. Remember the story, John, 10, John 13, 12 through 17, it says this, And when he washed their feet, Jesus, he pointed on his outer garments and resumed his place. And he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so am I. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do, (coughs) so that you should do just as I have done for you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is, no, is not greater than his master, nor a messenger greater than the one who sent him. You see what Jesus, what, Paul, what Peter's saying here is the same attitude that Jesus took out off his outer garment and clothed himself and got on one knee and washed in humility the feet of the disciples. He's calling us to live with that same humility. You see, in that day, feet, were na- feet are already nasty. Even with shoes and socks on. I'm not a feet person. They gross me out. But I couldn't imagine being in that time frame with those grimy feet. They had sandals. They didn't have paved roads. They had dusty roads. And so every place they walked, how nasty and grimy their feet got. And yet what did Jesus do? In his humility, he cleaned the most nasty part of them as a declaration to say as nasty as these feet are I'll clean something that's even nastier than that at your wicked heart and what does he do the next few days he prepares himself to go and clothe himself with humility to die on the cross which we get to come and celebrate in just three short weeks amen and so are we clothing ourselves with humility. Here's what he says. When you clothe yourselves with humility, this is the reason that we live humble lives. And Peter takes two verses, two ideas in uh, Proverbs chapter 3, uh, verse 34. He says this. This is what happens when you live humble lives. But to the humble, he gives favor. It's what James says in James chapter 4, verse 6. But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. You see, when we live humble lives, the grace of God will fall on us. What is the grace of God? What is God's grace? If God says, I'm going to give you grace when you live humble lives, we have to understand what God's grace is. This is what one writer says God's grace is. God's undeserved favor towards us. And is needed not only to save us from eternal judgment, but it also enables us to live lives with Christ. That is the grace of God on our lives. But the grace of God only comes when we live in 
humility. You see, living in humility, the way we've been teaching throughout this, this whole book, is that we come to the end of ourselves, and we have a recognition that God is doing for me what I cannot do for myself. First, it starts with salvation, amen? I cannot save myself. If I could save myself, I would need to celebrate Easter. I cannot save myself, nor can you. I cannot do the, the, the attitude of sanctification, the ongoing process of saving my, myself, and I cannot do glorification. I cannot stand before a holy God by myself. I need Jesus Christ's blood, his grace to cover me so that I can even get into heaven, and that's what God does for us. That's where he says in chapter 1, to the elect, the ones that he has chosen to give his grace to. Amen? And so if you're here as a believer, it's because you are God's elect. Because God has decided to, in his gracious power, to give you his grace. And in your response, you've received that grace. That's who he's talking about. He says this, that you would live in that grace. One writer says it this way. This is this, God is saying it this way. God continually, continually opposes the proud, but continually gives grace to the humble. He continually opposes the proud, but just as he continues he opposes the proud, he continues to pour his grace out on you and me, the believer. If we live humble lives, how are we to live humble lives? How are we to clothe ourselves? He says it this way in verse 6. Humble yourselves. You live in humility. How are we to live in humility under the mighty hand of God? See, we will only live lives of humility with the understanding of God's mighty hand. What does that text say? What does that word mean? What does it mean to, for us to live under the mighty hand of God? We must have a proper understanding of who God is. The mighty hand of God is simply means this. The sovereign power and control of God. Do we believe that God is all-powerful and all-sovereign? He is over all things. He authors all things. He instructs all things. See, when we live under the mighty hand of God, we will live humble lives. We will do exactly what Isaiah did in chapter 6. We will see God in heaven, and we will fall on our face in humility because woe is me. Because you come face to face with an almighty God. And it's out of fear, a healthy fear that says, I am not him and he is all powerful and all controlling. Therefore, I will submit my life to him. And therefore, when I live in submission, the way he just talked about last week, as we submit to the others, we're really submitting to God and we live in submission. We let him control every aspect of our lives. Therefore, we won't live with the way he tells us to. We, we won't live with anxiety because we're not trying to achieve anything because we live under the mighty hand of God and God will do for me what I can't do for myself. So if God wants me to get a promotion, I'm going to get a promotion. If God wants me to uh, achieve success, I'm going to succeed at just success. I don't have to do it on my own. And then what does it say? He said, when we live under the mighty hand of God, it says this, at the proper time, he will exalt you. And that word there, at the proper time, does not mean necessarily and only 
after this uh, time and age and eternity. It means now. If you live a life of humility and you live under the mighty hand of God, God will exalt you. He will lift you up. That's what the word means. I don't know when that will happen. But I know the promise is true. If I live a life of humility in my suffering, in the proper time, God will exalt me. Amen, he'll exalt me in eternity to come. But the promise is today, now, in this lifetime, God will exalt you. That is a promise we must hold on to. The promise doesn't mean it's going to happen right away. It says in what? The proper time, he will exalt you. Meaning he will lift you up. And then he tells us, when we live with, in humility, we, we do this next. We cast our anxiety, verse 7. Casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. You see, it's gonna, the hinge point of all this is going to be on those last five words, because he cares for you. You see, you're not going to cast your anxiety on anyone if you don't believe they care for you. You see, if I don't believe God cares for me, I won't believe that he wants to take my anxiety. He doesn't want to take my troubles. He he doesn't want to help me. He doesn't want to walk with me if I don't believe he cares for me. So the first question that you have to ask is not are you going to cast your anxieties on him, but are you going to believe that he cares for you? Do you believe that God cares for you and me this morning? Because if you do, you will cast your anxieties on him you see Tennyson at six years old this week so sad I won't tell the whole story but she uh, got disciplined at the YMCA Uh, and it wasn't a just discipline she got accused of something she did not do and Tennyson is a rule follower by nature she's going to follow the the letter of the law to a T so anything outside of that, if, if she gets in trouble for, she's going to go into what? Anxiety. What did I do? What did I do? I, I didn't mean to. I didn't mean to. And I remember sitting in my office on Wednesday, and Jenny came in, and she was crying. She said, I didn't mean to. I didn't mean to. I didn't mean to. I didn't mean to. And yet then she spills the beans to me and Jenny. Why? She spilled her anxiety to me and Jenny because she knew we cared for her. You see, do you believe And the same God that resurrected from the dead his son is now living in you and cares for you in that way. Do you and I believe that? Because if we believe that, we will cast our anxieties onto him. The same way that Tennyson cast her anxieties onto me and Jenny. Because she in some way believed that me and Jenny could do something about it and would do something about it. And so what did Jenny do? She got in her car, left Tennyson here. I cared for Tennyson talked to her as Jenny went to the school and talked to the YMCA. And she got to come back, and Jenny got to come back with Tennis and and tell her what happened, and then what happened? Her anxiety was gone. But her anxiety was only gone because she did the willingness of casting her anxiety onto me and Jenny. And you know, that's a small snapshot of the power of God in our lives. God has way more power than for us to go to the YMCA. God controls all things at all times. And yet somehow in our fear, we don't cast our anxieties onto him. How come? Because it's what we talked about in the first point. We don't clothe ourselves with humility. 
You see, humility says, I don't have the answer. And if I don't have the answer, someone else has to have the answer. But if I live an unhumbled life, a selfish life, a controlled life, I'm going to say I have all the answers. I'm going to get what I want, when I want it, how I want it. And that's the world we live in. And you and I in this world are just a number, we're just a rung on the ladder to achieve the next success. And what happens when we get caught up in that? It causes a tremendous amount of anxiety. I don't have enough money. If I just have enough money, blank. If I just had this love in my life, blank. And all the things that this world says are our answer, become our answer and our solution. And yet we are always left with more and more and more anxiety because we get into the relationship and the relationship isn't the thing that fulfills us. Or we get that next promotion and we get that next raise and we see that the raise, there's always more money to be had and that doesn't fulfill us. And it causes all this anxiety. And what does he say to us? Cast all your anxieties onto him. It's what he says, the Lord Jesus himself says in Matthew chapter 11, 28 through 30. Come to me. All who labor and are heavy laden or who have much anxiety. And what does he say? I will give you rest. I wonder if we in here, myself included, don't have rest because we're not coming to God and placing all our, our anxieties before him. He says this, once you take rest, then take my yoke upon you. You see, the yoke of this world is never restful. But if you take his yoke upon you and you what, what John's saying to us throughout the morning, you lean on him and you learn from him for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will what find rest for your souls that verse has been helpful for me for my yoke is easy and my burden is light for you and me this morning as we live in this world full of anxiety we get caught up in the anxiousness of the world or do we cast our burdens onto him? Here's the next thing that he says now that we move from humility to casting our anxieties. He says this. It's a, a, a cautious watching, he says in verse 8. Be sober-minded, be watchful, for your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to, <clears throat> to, de, to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by all the brotherhood. So what does he tell us to do? Be watchful. See, there's no way for you and I to live sober-minded with tons of anxiety. Just the mind, if you were a scientist and you looked at the mind, the cortisol level of the brain goes exponentially when you're caught up in anxiety. And if you have that much cortisol running through your brain, you cannot be sober. You cannot have right thinking with that tremendous amount of cortisol rushing through your brain cells. And so what does he say to us? You've got to be watchful. The only way for you and I to be watchful is to not have the anxiety. The only way not to have the anxiety is to cast it onto him. The only way to cast it onto him is to believe and trust that you need a God to do that for you. And he says this, be watchful, be sober-minded, 
You know, that, that word sober is in regards to uh, physical intoxication. He's talking about drunkenness, but he's using it in a metaphor. He's saying, don't get drunk on anxiety. And I bet if we took a survey, all of us this morning would say, man, uh, I've never drank before, but man, I've been drunk on anxiety. I've been so intoxicated by what's going on up here, I can't even stay present here. Anyone relate? Or I'm the only brother in this. Like, I, I mean, I'll be sitting at my desk, and, and I'll be over in China thinking about something, but I'm really in Walter Hill, Tennessee. That's called anxiety. It's not called ADD, though you may have that. But if you're here and you're thinking about what's way over there and you're caught way over there, that's called anxiety. You're not being present with yourself or with God or other people. And if, I, if you're not present, if you're not being sober-minded, there no, there's no way you can be watchful. Hence the DUIs that happen all day, every day. They're not sober, therefore they're not being able to watch what's coming or watch what they're going to do. Be sober-minded. Why are we to be watchful and sober-minded? Because there is an adversary, the devil. Amen? We do have an adversary, the devil. And Peter tells us this devil is what? Like a, it prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. So he says to us, be watchful, be sober-minded. Think of the word be watchful. It means this, to stay awake. Peter's telling himself, hey man, I remember what it was like to fall asleep in the garden. I remember what it was like to be caught up in all this anxiety that Jesus just told us. He's going to die and he's going to go to heaven and all this is going to happen. I can only imagine the anxiety and what happens to you, or for me at least, in anxiety. The number one place I want to go to anxiety after I, I get caught up in this session, man, I just want to fall asleep. Because at least then it stops. But what happens the moment I wake up, man? Well, that's what happened to Peter in the garden. He was caught up in anxiety and he fell asleep. And then falling asleep, he didn't remember that he had the devil, the adversary, prowling around like a roaring lion. So he says, stay awake. Of all the things he could have described the devil as, he describes him as a roaring lion. I don't think you and I here in this culture can ever understand what that means. You and I go down to the, the Nashville Zoo and we see a roaring lion. It's real cute behind the cage. Oh, look at the lion, it's roaring. How cute. Or, or we got those two other, uh, I'll call them morons. I, I'll probably get in trouble for that. The two other morons in Vegas, uh, Siegfried and Roar. Like, you're going to get in a cage with an animal? Like, you can't really tame a lion. You can't contain a house cat. They're just not as vicious. A cat is going to do whatever a cat wants to do. That's why I don't like cats. A cat will do whatever. It does not understand. Come, sit, go over there. It does not care. And now all of a sudden he's saying, hey, you know that cat, that little house cat? You don't have a house cat. You have a roaring lion ready to devour you. The word devour means to engulf you. 
And so a few years ago when that guy got his face mauled in the cage by a lion, everyone was shocked. What is a lion? What does a lion want to do? The lion is what? The king of the jungle. It's not the king of the cage. It's the king of the jungle. And in its DNA, it's always going to be the king of the jungle. I don't care how well you pet the thing. It will always want to chew your face off. And yet, for some reason, we've put Satan, the devil, he says to us, no, it's a lion, and we've made him into a tame house cat. And then we invite this tame house cat into our lap to pet and to soothe and to hear it purr and all the cute things that cats, I guess, do. And then we're shocked when it's got us by the neck. We're shocked when Satan's got us by the neck and it's, he's devouring us and taking us into the wilderness to kill us. We're shocked by that. Here's the other thing about a lion. Jerry and I stayed up last night and we were watching the, the new plan, uh, Planet Earth. Amazing show. But on the first uh, episode, uh, we didn't watch this one, but they did this special on the lions. You know who the lions go after in the herd? The sick one, the weak one, the isolated one. You see, lions aren't going after the healthy ones, the ones that stay in the pack. He always goes after the weak ones. Which says to me, from this text, That's the reason we must do this and do it well. Because we have an adversary that's a roaring lion ready and waiting to devour us. Do we believe that this morning? It's what Jesus says about Satan himself. In John 10.10, the thief, the adversary, the lion comes what? Only to. Still, steal, kill, and destroy. Do we believe that to be true? Because if we believe that to be true, that we have an adversary, then we'll do what he tells us to do next, which is shocking to me. It's shocking to me what he says. Hey, he says this, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to, to devour but, you could put but in there, but resist him. Circle that in your Bible. Now, I don't know about you, but that's not the word I would have chose if there's a roaring lion ready to devour me. I would say, run from him. But Peter tells us to what? Resist him. Which means I've got to what? He tells us again in chapter 5, verse, uh, t- verse 12, stand firm in it. So Peter's now telling me we have an adversary, a roaring lion, ready to devour us, and he says, hey, don't run, stand firm. Stand firm. You see, if we, the church, rally together and we stand firm against the attacks of the devil, he will flee us. Hello? How often has the church here in America not stood 
firm on who we believe to be true of who Jesus is. And now we're in the predicament we're in because we did not stand firm. And what does he tell us to stand firm in? In our what? Our faith. What does that word mean? What is, it, what is Peter telling us? It has this idea of knowing and understanding sound doctrine. Do you know God's word? Not because you come for 40 minutes, 45 minutes to hear this preaching, but do you know God's word? Are you in God's word on a daily basis? Are you understanding sound doctrine? Because if you know sound doctrine, then you can stand firm, not on you, but on the sound doctrine that says, hey, I've already got this, is what Jesus tells us. I've already won this battle, Jesus tells us. But so often we flee from Satan. We do flee temptation. God's word tells us that. But all the other places says, stand firm against your adversary with sound doctrine. That's what Paul is saying to us. Hey, this is the, the, the sword. What does a sword do? A sword is meant for two things. Defense and attack. Defense and attack. And so we can stand firm and we can defend ourselves and we can attack when Satan comes our way. But if you do not know this, if you do not have sound doctrine in your life, you will always flee. And in fleeing, I promise this, you will always be caught and you will always be devoured. You cannot outrun Satan. You cannot do it. But you can stand firm against him in your faith. And then he says this, because of time, stand firm. He says this, hey, I want you to know you're not alone. All the brotherhood, all the sisterhood has experienced this uh, tribulation, this suffering all over the world. You're not alone. Powell's Chapel, we're not alone in our suffering. Other brothers and sisters in Christ in this moment are suffering as well. That's what he says. And we do it together. We live in community of suffering people as we stand firm. He tells us this two things, two more things, and then we'll be done. Verse 10, we count on his promises. You see, after we stand firm, after we resist him in our faith, knowing that, that we are not alone, he says this, and after you have what suffered a little while, suffering is coming. But he says this, when you suffer and the suffering is over, this is the promises of God, the God of all grace, who has called you to himself, to the eternal glory in Christ Jesus, he himself will do this when you stand firm. Four things. He will restore you. He will confirm you. He will strengthen you. He will establish you. The word restore means this. He will make you whole. He will make you whole. The word confirms means this. He will set you fast. He will point you in the right direction. He will confirm where you need to go the second the third one is this he will strengthen you he will make you sturdy and he will make you steady you do not have to do that on your own he does that that's a promise from god the last one is this and he will establish you 
He will lay a foundation in you. You do not have to lay the foundation. The foundation ha- has already been laid for you. Now you get to do what? You get to be restored in that foundation. You get to be confirmed in that foundation. You get to be strengthened in that foundation. Those are the promises of God. Do you this morning believe that you have been restored, confirmed, strengthened, and established? Do you believe that this morning? Because when you believe those things and you and I live a life of humility, we cast our burdens onto Jesus. We have a watchful, sober mind and we continue to count on the promises of God. It will lead us to this last verse that Peter tells us. We will celebrate. Verse 11 is all about celebration. To Him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. That is a benediction. That is a celebration of all that God has done. We look back over those last few verses and we celebrate what God has done for us. God is the one that has made us humble. God has given us grace. God is the one we get to cast our anxiety onto. God is the one that helps us to be watchful and sober-minded. And God is the one that gives us all these blessings. And we look backwards all that we can do is look forward in celebration to all that he's done and all that he's going to do. That is what Peter says. He says this, to him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Is that true for us this morning, Pals Chapel? You see, will we be a church that's marked first with suffering? You see, we must suffer well. If we are doing the things of the Lord and what God has called us to, we have an adversary that wants to attack us. And I'm not saying in the attack we aren't going to get harmed by him some. I hope we come out with some scratches. But he won't devour us. He will not kill us. But it's not going to be an easy fight with him. He's going to take out all the stops to discourage us. But can we believe that there's a God in our suffering that wants to move us through our suffering and is with us through our suffering? And we could say, man, God's grace is sufficient in all things, the same way that Paul said when he had cried out to God three times for that thorn to be removed from his side. What did he say? Your strength is greater than my weakness true for us palace chapel as we walk through suffering is god's grace covered all of our disgrace let us pray god i'm